Okay, so what we're going to do is walk through currently approved therapies for IBD and then talk about some therapies that are on the way. We certainly know about the anti-TNFs that are approved for Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. The integrin antagonist, essentially just vetalizumab. We have ustekinumab, and now we have the Janus kinase inhibitor, atofacitinib. So what about the anti-TNFs? There are four, infliximab, adalidumab, acertilizumab, and golivumab. It's hard to think back, but I was in practice when the first anti-TNF, Remicade, was approved in 1998, and here we are 20 years later still learning how to use this and optimize the therapy, both IV and sub-Q formulations, and we have extensive efficacy and safety data on these agents. So let's just walk through the anti-TNS for clinical remission and ulcerative colitis. Again, we can't compare across trials, but wherever you look, you can see basically comparing infliximab and at two different doses compared to placebo at eight weeks. This is the ultra data in adalimumab, and this is the pursuit data in golimumab. And then if we want to look down at 54 weeks or 52 weeks, we see that patients who attain remission can maintain remission at high rates. So again, we all are fairly familiar with these agents for ulcerative colitis. So let's look at the anti-TNS for Crohn's disease. Again, this is the CHARM trial, which is the maintenance study for adalimumab, the ACCENT trial, the, which is the trial for infliximab, and the PRECISE trial for certolizumab. Again, in patients who respond, in this case, we're looking at placebo. We have placebo and not all the arms, but clearly we know that patients who respond can maintain remission. And again, I think we would all argue in 2018 we can do better than what they did in clinical trials, because now we're optimizing therapy using combination therapy and using therapeutic drug monitoring in the appropriate setting. However, the anti-TNFs do have some baggage. I think if we really want to concentrate on the things that we're concerned about, it would be immunogenicity, infusion site reactions. And then for this audience today, the things that we'll be talking about are basically looking for infections that we can prevent, either because of vaccination or because of identifying high-risk patients prior to starting these, these immunosuppressive therapies. So again, there are a number of common and uncommon side effects of the anti-TNFs, and we'll be talking later on about, again, herpes zoster and screening for tuberculosis. What about the anti-integrins? They specifically target the alpha-4, beta-7, do not inhibit it, uh, binding at VCAM. This is for vetalizumab, and we know how this is administered. And again, just like I showed you with the anti-TNFs, if we want to drill down to data, this is data at week eight looking at response and remission. If we concentrate on remission, this is placebo. Uh, this is patients who are anti-TNF naive, and we all know that patients who are exposed to an anti-TNF and start a second agent, there can be a diminished response, and this is, these are individuals across the board. And if we take patients and follow them over time, the way this study was designed, as you may or may not recall, is that patients were randomized to every four or every week, uh, eight-week vetalizumab. And again, if we want to look at response, remission or steroid-free remission, the group of patients who received either every four or every eight-week infusions did better. As you know, the uh, approved dose is every eight weeks maintenance. And in terms of looking at betalizumab and Crohn's disease, if we just want to concentrate on the overall population, this is at week 10 remission, 28.7% versus 13% in patients receiving placebo. And again, if you break it down by anti-TNF failure versus anti-TNF naive, you can see a better response in the anti-TNF naive group. And then similarly to the other studies, if we look at week 52, looking at clinical remission or steroid-free remission, individuals receiving every four or every eight weeks 
uh, do better than those receiving placebo. And again, it's approved for every eight weeks maintenance. So what about vedolizumab safety? Uh, this is just one study uh, from John Fred Columbell that was published in Gut. This was looking at the uh, patients in the clinical trials. So we have data on more than 2,800 patients, a favorable safety profile, not associated with any increased risk of serious or opportunistic infections. Rate of malignancy was consistent with that observed in IBD patients normally. Infusion reactions are rare. Uh, again, up until about a couple of months ago, we would say there were no cases of PML. There's been one case of PML uh, that's been reported from Sweden, I believe, or someplace in Northern Europe. It was seen in an HIV-positive patient with profound immunosuppression, both from their HIV as well as therapy for inflammatory bowel disease. And this was adjudicated by an independent board and felt to be related to the severe HIV immunosuppression. Patients who have HIV or severely immunosuppressed can develop PML. So again, I think we can no longer say that there are no cases of PML, but based on the number of patients who have received therapy since the launch of vedolizumab for Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, this is not a risk that concerns me, and I think it's one that we have to reassure our patients. What about the interleukin inhibitors? We have ustekinumab. We know how this works. It's approved as an IV induction dose and based on weight, and then um, 90 milligrams sub-Q every eight weeks. There's another agent you may be hearing about in the near future called rizinkizumab. It's a specific, it's in the same class, but it's targeting the P19 subunit of IL-23, and this is given by sub-Q injections at zero, four, and eight weeks. Uh, these are data from the Unity 1 and Unity 2 trials that were used for uh, approval of ustekinumab here in the United States by the FDA. Again, let's concentrate on remission. The Unity 1 group of individuals were allowed to have been exposed to anti-TNFs. And the way this was designed is they designed the study with a single IV induction dose of 130 milligrams or a weight-based dose of 6 milligrams per kilo. As you know, this is the dose that was approved by the FDA. And if we look at week eight remission, one in five patients were in remission compared to 7.3% of those individuals receiving placebo. If we look at a group of individuals who were not TNF exposed, you can see, again, just like we saw with vedolizumab, an increased response in those individuals who were not TNF exposed. And then just like all the other studies, once you do an induction study, you then follow patients over time. There are a number of different endpoints in this, uh, these particular studies, including clinical remission, glucocorticoid steroid remission, and these are the data across those, um, those fields. What about the safety of ustekinumab? Adverse events were similar among treatment groups in all trials. There was no PML. There was a smattering of uh, malignancies, a small bowel carcinoid, uh, five non-melanoma skin cancers, a number of infections. We can talk about ways that we can do in our history when speaking to individuals, where have they traveled? Again, don't drink unpasteurized milk, things of that that we should all incorporate into our practice to try to lower the risk of some of these infections. And what we found in clinical trials, uh, which is basically corroborated, which they saw, uh, sorry, what we find in clinical practice, which corroborated what was seen in the clinical trials, is a very low rate of developing anti-drug antibodies. 
Well, what about the Janus kinase inhibitors? We've had tofacitinib now since May, which basically inhibits all JAKs, but preferentially inhibits JAK1 and JAK3. It's approved in May for moderate to severe ulcerative colitis. It's given orally at a twice daily dose. There's another JAK inhibitor, and there's several JAK inhibitors actually, but the one that's most far along is filgotinib, which is an inhibitor of JAK1 with some selectivity. And this is now in clinical trials uh, for Crohn's disease, and it's oral, also an oral agent. So let's look at the tofacitinib data. If you went to the program this afternoon with, um, with Susie Kane or the program yesterday as part of the postgraduate course, you may have seen these data. Two clinical trials that get FDA approval, Octave 1 and Octave 2, in patients with moderate to severely active ulcerative colitis. If we want to, again, concentrate on clinical remission in Octave 1, it was 18.5 percent versus 18, sorry, versus 8.2 percent, and this is in the second clinical trial, 16.6 versus 3.6 percent. What were the uh, safety signals in the eight-week study? Basically, treatment emergent adverse events uh, and treatment emergent serious adverse events were similar in both the placebo and tofacitinib. There were higher rates of infections in these agents. You can see basically in the tofacitinib 10 milligram group, 23 uh, and 18.2% in octave 1 and 2 compared to the placebo group. Again, patients with inflammatory bowel disease do develop any number of infections. If we look at serious infections, these are outlined right here, and we'll be talking about the shingles ricks when we look at their uh, long-term data, the Octave Sustained study. Uh, rates of overall infection and serious infection were higher in the tofacitinib than with placebo. So uh, this is the data for the 52-week uh, uh, maintenance study. In this study, patients were either given placebo, tofacitinib 10 milligrams BID, or tofacitinib 5 milligrams BID. This is looking at the endpoint of remission. We can talk about in the Q&A how you choose which dose to use for maintenance. 40.6% in those individuals receiving 10 BID at 52 weeks compared to 11.1% of those receiving placebo. And then again, very nice to see mucosal healing data in the study as well. So what about the long-term safety uh, concerns? Again, in the long-term uh, study, the 52 weeks, the rate of serious infection was similar across uh, the three treatment arms. But again, this was the issue uh, that showed up uh, in the 52-week study. We heard from Gill there were certain subgroups of individuals who were at higher risk. So basically, herpes zoster infection occurred in three patients, 1.5 percent in the tofacitinib 5 milligram uh, BID dose. It was 5.1 percent in the tofacitinib 10 milligram BID dose up to 52 weeks, and only one case for 0.5 percent in the placebo arm. As pointed out by Dr. Melmet, basically it's either one or two dermatomes. Most patients uh, either held therapy for a short period of time and then restarted therapy. So these were treated as you would treat any other herpes zoster infection, and then you can continue therapy. So uh, we heard a little bit about a new S1P1 uh, at the plenary session today. The one that's more far along is ozonamide. Uh, it's an anti-trafficking agent that targets the S1P1 receptor responsible for efflux of T cells, so it traps lymphocytes in T cells. Again, it's a once-daily dose given orally, so patients are going to be attracted to this. And atrosamide, I won't go over this data, it was just presented uh, today, is another agent with maybe some slight different uh, specificity. 
So these are the data. We can look at clinical response, clinical remission, mucosal healing, and histologic remission. As you know, we're setting the bar even higher these days. We want more than clinical remission, mucosal healing. We now are looking at histologic remission. This is not an endpoint, though, in treat-to-target as of 2018. And in these studies, they compare placebo versus ozonamod 0.5 milligrams and ozonamod 1 milligram. And you can see there's a statistically significant increase in clinical response in uh, clinical remission, mucosal healing, and histologic remission when looking at, actually not histologic remission, though there's a trend, looking at the one milligram dose. And this is only at eight weeks. And if we look at the safety findings in, this, in these studies, basically no important differences among the groups. Um, the most important or most common adverse events were anemia, uh, headache, uh, lymphocyte counts will drop because these lymphocytes are being trapped, uh, and you can see what the numbers were. And we certainly need to have future studies looking at the risk of infection associated with the trapping of these lymphocytes, and we need longer um, maintenance data. So let me talk a little bit about the new vaccines. There are actually two new vaccines that you may want to know about. The first is a new hepatitis B vaccine. It was approved in November 2017. And it's two doses given over one month, as opposed to the standard hepatitis B vaccine that we've had for 20 years, which is three doses given at zero, one, and six months. So it's an accelerated vaccination regimen. It's a yeast-derived vaccine prepared, prepared with a novel adjuvant. You're going to hear about with the new shingles vaccine how they're adding an adjuvant to try to induce and boost the response. Uh, it's indicated for individuals above the age of 18. And if in head-to-head -head studies, if we look at seroconversion, developing anti-hepatitis B surface antibody, you can see after two doses of the new vaccine compared to three doses of the recombinant HBV vaccine, the old vaccine, it was 95.4% versus 81.3%, a significant increase, and this led to the approval of the drug. What you'll hear me say in the next, next few slides and was kind of raised by Gill is this comment of these potent immune agents that have an adjuvant. Is it going to be associated with any increase in immune responses? And so um, for those who are not here tomorrow, if you, if you are around, come to my poster tomorrow. We have some data on about 36 patients that we've given the new inactive vaccine. Uh, not all of them have received it. If you've had any experience with this vaccine, you know that it's taking a while to get it. It's not really available. I was pointing out to Millie that I'm, I'm unfortunately in that age that needs the vaccine, and my prescription is sitting at the CVS, and we're waiting for them to call me to say that it's come in. But we, all, we do want to look at this, and we've had one patient of 34 that seemed to have a flare of their ulcerative colitis after receiving the vaccine. Too early to know. It's less than 3%. It's something that we might see in the background, and we hope to add other sites so that we can kind of really drill down and look at this. Uh, no studies have looked at it in immunosuppressed populations, but again, it's an inactive vaccine. It's safe to give in immunocompromised patients, and uh, I think it's something that we're now looking at it, adding to our formulary in an effort to basically shorten that window and get our patients vaccinated sooner. So now let's talk about the new zoster vaccine. It's indicated for the prevention of herpes zoster or shingles in adults age 50 and above. Just so to put into reference, the live vaccine was only approved by the ACIP for patients 60 and above. Our guidelines that Gil and I and Susie and Gary put together recommended shingles vaccine for individuals above the age of 50, and this was prior to the new vaccine. 
So the way it's given is two doses, 0.5 ml is given intramuscularly at zero and then two to six months. After a mean follow-up of 3.2 years, uh, look at the efficacy of this. 97.2% of individuals still had antibodies and well, actually still had vaccine efficacy, meaning protection against developing shingles. Now, what I tell patients who are receiving this vaccine, one in five patients will have a pretty bad flu-like illness, fever, myalgias, and so I say, look, take the vaccine on a Friday night when you have no plans to do anything on a Saturday. Uh, we have not seen any patients with severe reaction to the vaccine in our registry of individuals. And again, if you kind of ask for vaccine-related complications and query people by a checklist, you see a higher rate. So what did the ACIP recommend? Well, basically, they met in 2017. The recommendations came out, and they were published in the Annals of Internal Medicine the first week of February. It's recommended for the prevention of herpes zoster and related complications in immunocompetent adults above 50. We'll talk about its use uh, and what we're doing in our clinical practice. Uh, if you receive, if you've, um, if you previously received the live zoster vaccine, the uh, ACIP recommends that you go ahead and get this new vaccine. The reason is, is that the live vaccine wanes in efficacy over five plus years. And so if you received it when you were 62 and you're now seeing a 68-year-old patient with ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, they should receive the inactive vaccine. And they went as far as saying that in 2018, the recommendation is, is that you we should be giving the inactive adjuvant the ZVL vaccine for the prevention of uh, herpes zoster and not be giving the live vaccine anymore. So what are some of the barriers to vaccination? Well, there's certainly general apathy among patients and physicians. We need to be able to reassure our patients that the overwhelming evidence is that vaccination is not associated with a flare of their disease. We're going to be watching very carefully for the Shingrix vaccine to be sure that's not the case. A lot of constraints. You know, you may or may not be able to offer this in your office. But I would just tell you, if you do not offer this in your office, don't send the patient to the primary care doctor. I love my wife who's a primary care doctor. She's very, very busy, and she's got five things to do in 20 minutes when she sees the patient. What we are doing now is writing a prescription. We know whether the patient's immunosuppressed. We know what therapies they're on. We are leading their care. So what we do, again, in my office, we offer these vaccines, but I would recommend that if you do not offer in your vaccine, just write a prescription for the shingles vaccine and send them, if they're 50 and above, we'll talk about under 50, and send them to their CVS or their local pharmacy and they can get it there. It can be administered, vaccines can be administered by pharmacists. Again, the ideal time to obtain a vaccination history is during that initial office visit. I know it's very difficult. We'll be talking about checklists that the patient could have and fill out in the waiting room while they're waiting to see you. In the best of all worlds, they should be vaccinated prior to starting immunosuppressive therapy. Gill showed some data that combination immunosuppressive therapy and anti-TNFs are associated with a blunted response. Um, if I made this point, we should either refer to the primary care provider, but now, this is actually from 2017, an article we wrote, but now we really just, we kind of bypass the primary care doctor and we send them to the pharmacy. And look, if you have a sick patient, you need to treat their disease. And so we would not recommend delaying vaccination in someone who, who basically needs immediate therapy.
So these are some of the checklists. You can download this. This is from the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. This is updated annually. The most recent update was in January 2018. And this, uh, this discusses both vaccinations as well as cancer prevention. We talked about cervical cancer, and there are a number of other things. And then other strategies, such as a DEXA scan, PPD, a smoking status, and looking for depression. The other checklist that you may have seen comes from Cornerstones. And again, this uh, is also available. You can download it, put it in your office. You can find a way to incorporate it into your EMR. It looks at a series of vaccine-preventable diseases, and you can record. It also talks about other issues, like that's not really the topic today, vitamin D, bone, bone density, uh, looking for toxicity of some of the medicines and, that we give, and then again, colon cancer and other type of screening. So the take-home points that I have are that multiple agents are available to treat patients with moderate to severe IBD. Small molecules and biologics with differing mechanism of action are in phase two and phase three studies. Ladies and gentlemen, if you think it's complicated now, just wait. We'll have more and more agents, which will be really wonderful for us and for our patients. We have a new hepatitis B and shingles vaccine available. I really do urge you to start writing prescriptions for these for individuals above the age of 50, and then use checklists to improve care to the, that you deliver to your patients with IBD. Uh, thank you.